This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Right, friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. Great to be with you. It is May 8, 2023. So we missed a week in there, um, which is fine. That's life. I told you at the beginning of this series that I wasn't really sure how it was going to all play out. Um, I don't really have every single weekend planned out. Um, I'm kind of taking it one week at a time here. And last week, uh, family stuff was going on. Uh, my eldest daughter graduated from college, so that was amazing and wonderful. We had family in town. So things were a little crazy, and I just decided, you know what? The podcast is not getting done this week. So I had pulled a little bit of content together, but definitely not enough to record an entire episode. So here we are, two weeks later, um, episode four. So episode one, we talked about the doomsday clock, which was basically cultural and social beliefs about the end of time, either based on science or entertainment, movies, books, all of that. Then in episode two, we called that the flip side, and we really dove into end time beliefs that are based on some level of like spiritual or religious belief system. And we kind of walked through the major world religions and, you know, their, their story about the end of time. Episode three, carrying the torch. We talked about the history and the origins of Christian eschatology and how you can literally trace them all the way back to Adam and Eve based on the uh, Christian religious tradition. So today we move directly into Christianity, which is the faith tradition that I grew up in. And we start the process of really defining what end time beliefs are held within this religious tradition. So today's topic, Transcending Eschatology, Part 4, Choosing Sides. Chapter 1, Picking Teams. Chapter 2, Developing a Playbook. And Chapter 3, Getting Millennial with It. All right, chapter one, picking teams. So in the last episode, we basically discussed the fact that there are divisions within Christianity, right? And what Christians believe about the end of time. Starting with the largest and most obvious of the divisions, the division between Catholicism and Protestantism. So we talked a little bit about this last time, but I just wanted to touch on it once more, uh, simply because it just keeps coming back up. And we will probably discuss it a number of times as we kind of move through Bible prophecy. So the Catholic Church believes that it is the one true church. Now, so do many Protestant denominations, I'm not going to lie. But the Catholic Church really takes it to a whole new level. The papacy in Rome believes that they are the head of the one true church. And the only reason that Protestantism even exists today is because a bunch of their Catholic kids ran away from home. They view Protestants as children who went astray. And what do parents do when a child or teenager runs away from home? Well, they go looking for them, right? Not to see how they're doing, 
or congratulate them on starting a new life. No, they go find them so that they can bring them home, to their real home, their true home, where they will be safe. And so it is with the Catholic Church. The belief is that Protestants ran away from their true home. Now, I I wouldn't say that this is necessarily the belief of every Catholic today, but this is a very traditional Catholic belief, a belief that basically led to atrocities like the Crusades, right, where the Catholic Church tried to force people to return to the Mother Church, and those who refused were killed. Now, if you're my age, you probably grew up with the band U2, Right? A band came from Ireland, a country that's literally been split apart by this conflict or these wars between Catholics and Protestants. And I don't believe that this behavior has completely stopped. I feel like there are places in the world today where the Catholic Church still persecutes those who do not choose to be part of their community. But for the most part, physical manipulation and things like that have stopped, and the rhetoric has softened a bit. I did a quick Google search for articles on how Catholics view Protestants these days, and you'll see what I mean because you find statements like, we're simply separated people from the same family, or God is working to reconcile us within his family, or the daughters who went astray will eventually return to their mother. But at the end of the day, the sentiment is really still there. There should only be one family, and the division should be repaired. Now, I'm reviewing this because I believe that it's one of the most important pieces of church history. It plays a role in our lives here in the United States, to be sure. If you don't believe me, here are just two examples. First off, I'm not going to call America a Christian nation, or for sure not a Protestant nation. But for some reason, our country seems to be okay with Protestantism and a little suspicious of Catholicism. Let's just look back at the presidents of the United States. No Catholics, that is, until John F. Kennedy. And what happened there? JFK was assassinated, along with other members of his family who were working within the government at the time. Since then, there has not been a Catholic president until this one, Joe Biden. Next is the Catholic influence in other branches of the government. Now, I find it interesting that One area where Catholics seem to be battling for dominance is in the Supreme Court. There has been a Catholic court justice in the Supreme Court ever since the 1800s. Pretty consistently, there's at least one, until the 1990s when this shot up to three. And then, after the Trump presidency, that number grew even higher. At this point, there is what's called a supermajority of conservative Catholics on the Supreme Court. Six in total. And the impact is obvious, right? The minute all were in place, the court repealed Roe v. Wade. And the court is prepared to walk through a laundry list of other current freedoms in order to determine if they should continue to exist. Like I said, two examples of the way Catholicism is playing a major role in our country today. But I also believe that the Catholic Church will play a major role at the end of time. Not the people of the Catholic Church. I don't believe Catholic people are dangerous or in some way opposing me or opposing Protestantism in general, but it's the church itself, the governing body, the laws, the beliefs, that this whole one true church concept, that's what I believe could become dangerous, but we'll talk more about that 
in future episodes. So as we've seen, there is a major divide between Catholicism and Protestantism. It began with the Protestant Reformation, which led to the Crusades, and is still very much alive in the world today. But if we take the Catholic Church out of the question, we still have division, even within Protestant Christianity. According to articles I found online, especially one from pewresearch.com, or .org rather, uh, there are numerous distinct religious groups and or denominations within Protestantism. That number is probably in the hundreds if you're talking about large groups like Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, etc. Or it could be in the thousands if you begin looking at all of the offshoots of each of these groups, the standalone religions and the cults that have basically been created outside of some of these groups. Now, it's not the number that's important, right? Whether it's 500 or 50,000, the problem is still the same, and that should be pretty obvious. There's division, right? There's obviously division. If you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of churches, there's got to be a reason, and that reason is that people can't agree on religious things. Basically, biblical interpretation, what's right, what's wrong, and the sad thing is that it makes God look bad, right? To the outside world, looking in, they simply see a bunch of siblings fighting. Each sibling says they know the truth, so they're right, which is obviously not true, because you can't have 500 different versions of the truth and have each one of those turn out to be true. Statistically, only one can be true, or none at all. Those are your options. Now, Another thing at play here is this little thing called spiritual warfare. Now, this will mean nothing to certain people, because there are people who believe in a god, but they don't really believe in an evil force like Satan or Lucifer or the devil or whatever we call this person who opposes God. But for those of us who believe in Satan, we tend to believe in a concept called spiritual warfare that there is this battle going on behind the scenes for the allegiance of every human being, past, present, and future. If that's you, uh, you might like a series we did a few years ago called Controversy Theory, uh, as it was based on this foundational belief that there is a spiritual war taking place all around us. So if you look at the world this way, the divisions that we see in Protestant Christianity, it makes total sense, right? From a spiritual warfare standpoint, this works really well for Satan or the devil or Lucifer or evil, however you want to refer to it. If there is truth at all within these churches, it will be that much harder to find, right? It'll be much harder to find for people who are looking um, and it makes it much harder for people to believe. It's like hiding the proverbial needle in a haystack. If the truth will always exist, you may as well try to hide it and make it harder and harder to find. Now, we could spend the next 10 episodes talking about all of the denominations, where they came from, why they exist, and what their core beliefs are, why they separated from other denominations, and things like that. But that has very little to do with our series on the end of time. So just know that there are hundreds upon thousands of denominations based on very unique beliefs that they choose to hold on to. And within this set of beliefs are some related to the end of time. Not that every church out there has a belief structure about the end of time, 
right? There may be churches out there that just choose not to even have the discussion. Maybe they find it too controversial. Maybe they view it as divisive to their congregation. But for whatever reason, maybe they choose to leave it on the shelf, to agree to disagree, and basically leave it up to the individual person if they really want to go down that road. But my guess is that most groups like this are probably in the minority. Uh, I feel like most denominations have a documented belief on the prophetic portions of the Bible. So that's what we're going to spend a few minutes working on this week. We're going to walk through some high-level belief buckets, if you will. Since we would never be able to walk through each denomination's unique set of beliefs about the end of time, we're going to instead look at some high-level buckets or categories of belief, ones that are pretty highly recognized and documented well. And for the most part, a lot of the unique denominations will fall into one of these buckets. So let's start at the top. Chapter 2, Developing a Playbook Within Christianity, one of the most important decisions a person or group of people have to make is what they want to do with the Bible itself. So here are just three of the many ways that you could choose to look at the Bible. Option 1, as the inerrant Word of God. Every single word was determined by God. There are no errors. There is no debate. God said it, and I believe it. Option two, errant, but very important. So even if there are some problems, some contradictions, the Bible is still an inspired work, right? Something that God will use to get his truth to future generations. And then option three, nothing more than a good book with some good stuff in it right? The Bible is simply a compilation of human writings. Some are helpful. Some are simply meant to inspire us. And there are a lot of artistic and poetic things that are left up to our interpretation. Now, that's an oversimplification to be sure. There are probably hundreds of variants in there. But at the end of the day, the beliefs that we choose to carry throughout our lives have come from somewhere, and if you're a Christian, that place is typically the Bible, or somebody reading the Bible to you, or somebody interpreting the Bible and telling you what it means. So how we view the Bible will play a very significant role in what we choose to believe. Next, we have the ways that people, groups of people, or denominations choose to interpret Bible prophecy. So back to the whole end of time conversation, right? The parts of the Bible that have to do with the future or the end of time are referred to as Bible prophecy. Books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, Zechariah, Matthew, Thessalonians, and of course, the book of Revelation. Some of these books contain short snippets of prophetic content, while others seem to be almost completely prophetic. So when a person or a group of people come to these sections of the Bible, they typically have a filter through which they read these sections. In other words, they've predetermined how they want to interpret these verses. Over time, these filters become stronger and stronger and stronger because they help you make sense of the things that you're reading. And once that filter is in place, it is used to help interpret everything from that point on. So let's look at what I would call the big five the five main categories for interpreting biblical prophecy. I'm just going to read them to you first, and then we'll walk through each one in a little more detail. So we have preterism, 
historicism, futurism, idealism, and eclecticism. So let's start with preterism. Preterism is a non-literal view of prophecy, and all prophecies within the Bible have already been fulfilled. The symbols and depictions in the book of Revelation, for example, refer to events that took place in the first century. Uh, people who believe in preterism believe that the Antichrist was a Roman emperor named Nero, and they believe that the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus in judgment happened in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. Next up is historicism. So, like preterism, historicists believe in a non-literal reading of prophecy. Uh, sometimes this is called the continuous historical view. Um, people who are historicists believe that the book of Revelation is describing the history of the church from the time of Jesus to his second coming. Because of this, some of the content in prophecy is history, and some of it is describing future events. But it is very difficult to place our current time into the timeline offered in Revelation. This is the belief held by the majority of those who came through the Protestant Reformation. Next, we have futurism. Interestingly enough, this view of the Bible did not exist until the Protestant Reformation. It's believed that futurism was proposed as part of the Counter-Reformation by the Catholic Church. Historicism painted the Church and the Pope in a pretty bad light, but the futurist view took that spotlight off the Church and placed it on future events that cannot be known. This is the one lens or filter that attempts to read Bible prophecy as literal words with real-life application. Futurism is also where we get the concept of the rapture. Uh, the Left Behind series, if you remember that, back in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, um, was a huge book series that was based on the futurist view of prophecy. Next, we have idealism. So, a belief that Bible prophecy has no real correlation to anything in history. The belief that Revelation is just a work of fiction, apocalyptic literature, right? Um, this was a genre that was very popular back in that day, in that time period, and according to idealists, Revelation was simply that, a classic tale of the timeless battle between good and evil. Any attempt to read in any historical or future events is pointless. The book was simply meant to encourage us that God will someday win. Good will triumph over evil. And finally, we have eclecticism. So this is kind of a blend of two other beliefs. It's a combination of futurism and partial preterism. So what does that even mean, right? Well, the belief is that the bulk of the book of Revelation has already taken place, but that chapters 20 to 22 describe a future second coming of Christ. This belief requires both literal and non-literal interpretation of the book in order to understand the prophecies therein. So there you go, five major takes on Bible prophecy. Now, there may be more, like I said, but these are the big five. And some people would argue that there are really only three that hold water. In many articles that I've looked at, they choose to discuss only three of the five. They choose preterism, 
historicism, and futurism. Now, on some level, I totally get it. I totally agree with this line of thought. So, idealism is very much tied to a specific view of the Bible, right? People who view the Bible as having little to no celestial influence, in other words, choosing to believe that God really had nothing to do with the writing or the compilation of the Bible. If this was my view of the Bible, I would most likely be an idealist, right? Not only with the prophetic parts, but probably the entire book. Works of art, poetry, good sayings, and encouraging words, but nothing more than that. As for eclecticism, uh, one of the articles I read put it this way, it's an arbitrary method of interpretation that violates its own internal logic by employing mutually exclusive interpretative method, interpretive methods whenever it suits the interpreter. Sound familiar? Uh, this would be the interpretive method of choice these days, uh, in the same way that church shopping is such a big deal. It isn't really about the truth. It's what works for me. Living in a capitalistic society, it's all about me and what I want and what I like and what works for me. Eclecticism seems to be the interpretation method that scratches that itch. So I think we'll believe it there at the big three, preterism, historicism, and futurism. Chapter three, getting millennial with it. So once you have your filter in place, right, there's another decision you'll have to make, and that's how you view the millennium, this thousand-year period of time that is described in the Bible. Similar to the interpretation methods, here are the big three beliefs about the millennium. First up, we have premillennialism, and this is broken into two parts. So there is classic or historic premillennialism, and then there is dispensational premillennialism. So in classic premillennialism, the simple explanation is that the 1,000 years exist after Jesus returns. So there will be difficult times on earth, what we kind of refer to as the tribulation. Then the second coming will happen, and then Jesus will take those who believe in him to heaven for a thousand years. In the dispensational premillennialism, um, there's this thing called the rapture, and the rapture happens at some point out of the blue. Then, after the rapture, there will be a very defined seven-year period of tribulation. At the end of that... Jesus will return, and then the 1,000 years will begin at that point. The next group are called postmillennials or postmillennialism. This belief is that the 1,000 years will be before the second coming of Christ. So at some point in time, and we wouldn't fully know what that time is, the millennium, or what they often refer to as the church age, will start here on earth. And during this time, the church will lead the charge in making the world a better place. Some refer to this as bringing the kingdom or bringing the kingdom from heaven to earth. During this time, uh, it is said that many will come to know Christ. And the entire world will be cleaned up, if you will, in order for Jesus to return. And the final belief about the millennium is amillennialism. So this is the belief that there is no such thing as a 1,000-year period of time. We are simply waiting for Jesus to return. When he does, believers will go to heaven with him, and non-believers will be judged and sent to eternal condemnation, whatever that means. So there you have it. 
again, various ways that people in the Protestant denomination have chosen to view this description of the millennium in Bible prophecy. Like I said with the various beliefs in how we interpret prophecy, there may be additional views on the millennium, I don't know, um, but these are the three that kind of boil up to the surface. Now, there's one more set of beliefs that I want to walk through before we wrap things up, uh, and this has to do with the rapture. So when we use this word, we're typically referring to the secret rapture, right? The thing that was made popular by futurists and the Left Behind series. But the word rapture simply means to be caught up in the air. So in this case, many people from many different categories of belief still believe in a thing called the rapture, just not necessarily a secret one. So here are the big three beliefs about the rapture. And these should be pretty easy to remember because you have pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. So pre-tribulationalists believe that the rapture will occur before the time of tribulation happens. So this is typically referred to as the secret rapture, like we talked about, and it happens suddenly and without warning. Next, we have mid-tribulationalists. So people who believe in mid-tribulation rapture believe that it will occur somewhere in the middle of a seven-year period of tribulation at the end of time. So things will become very difficult, and then at some point, three and a half years into that time, the rapture will happen and people will be taken off of the earth. Now, I can't be 100% certain. I wasn't able to clarify this in any of the articles that I read, but it really sounds to me like this would also be a secret rapture. And then finally, we have post-trib or post-tribulationalists. So people who adhere to this um, explanation of the rapture believe that the end times will be difficult for everyone. Everyone living at that time will go through it. And when Jesus returns, every eye will see him return. Now, at that time, a rapture will occur because people will be taking will be taken off of the earth. However, you can't really call this a secret rapture because it will happen at a time where everyone on earth is watching these events unfold. People won't miss it because it'll literally be the only thing going on at that time. So there you go. We just walked through three different lists, right? We talked about the three major schools of thought on biblical interpretation, preterist, historicist, and futurist. We talked about the three major schools of thought on the millennium, amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. And we just talked about the three major schools of thought on the rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Now, I wanted to walk through these lists first so that we could have this conversation, which is basically the fact that the existence of these major schools of thought is why there is so much debate and division surrounding Bible prophecy. Because it's complicated, and people don't agree on these three main elements. Some hold their view and are respective of other people who hold other views, but there are others who hold their view very strongly and are quick to tell everyone else that they're wrong. So it really makes sense to me that the general public often dismisses Bible prophecy as irrelevant to their lives right? Who wants to jump into a hornet's nest if you can just walk around it, right? Not only is it messy with all of the various beliefs, but it's also a very difficult subject, thinking about the end of time, right? Discussing things like tribulation, persecution, manipulation, 
and basically life as we know it coming to an end. But maybe we need to start over. What if we decided to look at Bible prophecy through a different lens? What if all of the studying that we do in order to find the right explanation for Bible prophecy is actually just misguided energy? What if God allowed the Bible to be a bit more confusing in this area on purpose? A level of difficulty and confusion because it maintains a very important element of the human condition. That little thing we call freedom of choice. Without it, what are we? We're victims. Or even worse, we're robots, just pawns in some sick and twisted universal game. So what if God treats Bible prophecy the same way he treats his own existence? You can't prove that God exists. Therefore, it has to be a choice whether or not we choose to believe in him. Similarly, we can't prove that one version of Bible prophecy is 100% true. But we can choose to read it and let God speak to us through it on some level. And this is really the approach I want to take in this series, right? What if we simply learned all of it without trying to find the one true explanation? If we simply read enough to understand what the Bible says and then be able to describe the various ways that people interpret it? To me, this might just be the best solution. And here's why. Option one, let's say you put all your eggs in one basket. It's the only explanation you study. You become convinced and you're 100% right and everyone else is wrong. And eventually your blinders are so dialed in that it's all you can see. Now let's say that your belief turns out to be wrong. What happens? Are you able to pivot quickly and accept the reality that you're presented with? Or are you so caught off guard that you just can't make the leap and you're unable to reconcile things? Or there's option two. You have a really good understanding of all the different explanations. Sure, you might pick one, one that you resonate with more than another, but you hold it loosely, right? And you focus on the fact that the bigger issue is not which explanation is right. The bigger issue is that all of them end the same way. At the end of the day, Jesus comes back and makes everything right. As time comes to a close, Having a more general view of all explanations allows you to be flexible. It allows you to read the room, so to speak. And as things on earth start to unravel, you'll be in a really good position to interpret what is happening, right? Things will make more sense to you. And you'll be able to place these events into the larger narrative of one of the explanations that you fully understand. Again, this is my hope for the Transcending Eschatology series, not to tell you which one to choose, but to walk through all of the options that you have and help you develop the mind of a generalist, a person who doesn't get locked into one train of thought, but who's able to make really good use of multiple trains of thought. Now, I can already hear people saying, but you are going to tell us what you believe, right? Now, that's a loaded question, to be sure. On the one hand, I have no problem telling you which direction I lean, but at the same time, I don't want it to become a distraction and keep us from our ultimate goal, which is to gain an overarching understanding of Bible prophecy so that we're fully equipped for the end of time, no matter how it goes down. So I've thought it through, and basically, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to tell you straight up where I lean, and then as we move through the series, we'll see how that plays out. So in terms of how I interpret Bible prophecy, I would say I lean toward historicism. 
So the idea that much of prophecy has already been fulfilled, right? It's describing things that have happened in the past, but that it also attempts to lay out a future timeline. As for the millennium, I lean toward classic premillennialism. So the idea that Jesus will return to collect those who believe in him and will take them to heaven for a thousand years. And when it comes to the rapture, I lean toward the post-trib explanation. So the belief that all people living on earth at the end of time will go through the end of time, or the tribulation as it's described in the Bible. So there you go. Do with it what you will. But like I said, don't allow my explanations or my beliefs to cloud your judgment. In this series, we will take a look at things from a variety of angles, right? We want to have a good understanding, not a lopsided understanding of Bible prophecy. So let's land the plane. I hope you're enjoying this little ride that we're on through this series. And I hope this episode specifically gave you a better understanding of how Protestant Christian eschatology shakes out right? How differing explanations have kind of solidified into these well-defined buckets of belief uh, over the years, and how an understanding of all of these buckets might be better than just an understanding of one. So this week, I would ask you to think through each of the lists that we discussed today. Based on your upbringing, do you already have a idea of where you fall? Like, can you already place yourself into one of the buckets or the other? Um, if you've never had somebody tell you what to believe, do you have a gut reaction to the various explanations? If so, which do you resonate with so far? And finally, are you willing to keep an open mind for the rest of this series in order to learn a bit more about each of these explanations? Thank you so much for joining me. Again, uh, this, this episode really hit for me this week. I don't know why, but I really love the way it came together. Um, and I really hope that it serves as a good jumping off point or like a foundation for the rest of this series. Uh, there's going to be a lot more detailed stuff coming in the future, uh, but I felt like this was a really good foundation to kind of kick us off. So I'll leave you with that. Uh, thanks again for hanging out with me. Next week, we're going to jump right in. I think I'm going to start with some of the plain language prophecy stuff in like the books of Matthew and Thessalonians, uh, things like that. So Join me next week if you're interested in that. Um, have a great week, friends. And as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.